welcome to RUF. Uh, it's great to have you all here. We're going to start in Second Samuel, or sorry, First Samuel, eighteen. Uh, you've got the selection in your handout, and I'll hopefully uh, lead you through. If you if you're reading with me through your Bibles, I'll lead you as we hop, skip, and jump through it. Do y'all love that commercial? I hope you love this commercial as much as I do. It never, you know, some commercials they get old after a while because you see them so much. But I love the commercial about car insurance with the three old ladies. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, these two old ladies are sitting there and one old lady's talking to them. And she says, you know, I'm saving a ton of time because I'm posting my, my pictures from my vacation here on my wall. And one of her friends says, ooh, I like that one. Um, and she says, it's a lot like how I saved 15%. Uh, on insurance in just 15 minutes. And the other friend says, I saved more than that in half the time. And the old lady looks at her and says, I unfriend you. Right? To which the lady replies, I love this line. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Right? I just, I love that commercial. How does it work? How does it work? Kind of, you know, a spoof on Facebook there. Three old ladies doing kind of their own real live Facebook in the living room. But how does it work? How does friendship work? How, does relation, how do relationships work? Maybe you've felt the sting or the frustration um, having to work on relationships, right? Uh, wanting so badly to have good relationships, whether just with friends, maybe romantically, you name it, right? How does it work? Well, we're looking at the life of David this semester um, in the books of First and Second Samuel. David, we've seen already, is this larger-than-life figure, but he's accessible to us because he comes to us through story. We get his story. We get to dive into his story week in and week out as we're looking at this. And the story offers up to us both an example of a godly man, right? A man after God's own heart. What does that look like? What does it look like to have God at work in your life? We'll continue seeing that uh, throughout this study. Uh, but we also see one who prefigures or points to the true king, Jesus in very real ways, and we've seen that already in our couple of times together. Well, as we pick up here in Second First Samuel, First um, Samuel eighteen, the story picks up right where it left off. Mighty David is victorious over the Philistine giant Goliath. David is full of the Spirit. David is already looking like the king that God has anointed him to be. And now immediately the story is going to take a turn. And for a great majority or a great uh, swath of this story, uh, David's life is going to be pretty hard. And we see that beginning tonight. And what sticks out to us uh, in these three chapters, uh, 18 through 20, is this. If David is going to be the man after God's own heart that God is calling him to be, he's going to need friends. That's just kind of the simple point I want to, I want to look at tonight. David is going to need friends. So let's, uh, let's read this together. Before we do, let me, let me pray for our time together. Father, as we come to your word uh, tonight, we pray, as we always do, that we would hear you speaking. Father, that you would speak into our hearts. Father, for those who are comforted or too comfortable, I pray that you would disrupt them. For those who are disrupted... By life and relationships, I pray that you would bring comfort through this story. Father, would you teach us? Would you grow us as we 
look to your word to give us life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in 1 Samuel 18, we'll read the first 11 verses and then we'll hop. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he had loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Skip over to chapter 20, first four verses. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Skip to verse 26. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought of David. Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why, was, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That like sounded really proper, but he was giving an insult there. So anyway, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out in the field, an appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, it is not, is not the arrow beyond you. And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. 
So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed and Jonathan went into the city. This is God's word for us tonight. Three points, uh, as I usually do. Um, The need for a friend, the love of a friend and the costliness of. Of being a friend, okay? The first one's a need, the need for a friend. doesn't take a rocket scientist um, to realize that David needs some help here. Uh, as Saul's anger and jealousy, uh, his malcontent kind of takes over and he wants David's life. You know, and for, some of, for most of you, for most of us, this just makes sense, right? Everybody needs friends. We all want friends. We all enjoy having friends. No one wants to be lonely. Some of you are very okay with your friend's situation, who your friends are, um, how those relationships are going. Others of you are all too aware that you need or want more friends or that you want more out of your friendships. Well, look at where David finds himself. The thing about David here is, as we roll into this part of the story, is that his life is rocking and rolling. Everything he does, if you read straight through 18 through 20, everything he does is successful. He goes out, Saul sends him out to fight hundreds of Philistines, hoping that they'll kill him, and he just kills all of them. I mean, he is rocking and rolling. Everything he touches is gold. He's chosen to be king. He's slain the giant. He's the new rock star. Everybody loves him. Saul's son loves him. The women in the streets love him. Saul's daughter loves him. Everybody loves David, okay? David is doing everything right, finding success in all of it, and virtually everyone loves him. But for the foreseeable future... His life is going to be marked by strife and enmity. Okay? As his life goes forward from this point, he's going to be on the run. He's going to be fearing for his life. He's going to be weighing people's allegiances towards him, not knowing who he can turn to. This is the new context of David's kind of spiritual formation. If you read through the Psalms of David, which I hope we can incorporate those uh, as we go this um, this semester, but you see that a lot of David's spiritual formation is formed in the context of strife, of not knowing which way is up, of not knowing if God is there, of not knowing he's going to be protected, okay? The point that we get right at the outset after these victories that we've seen is that if David is going to make it, he is going to need friends, okay? And that's precisely what we see in God's provision of Jonathan and David's life. Jonathan just kind of, the author just kind of slams him into the story for us. How Jonathan loved David and how they became fast friends and how they bound themselves to one another, okay? Um, If not for Jonathan, the picture is the story very well could have and would have ended here. If not for Jonathan, David does not continue in Saul's service doing what Saul wants, going and fighting Saul's battles and being victorious. If not for Jonathan, David is very likely maybe killed. If you read in chapter 19, Saul is Game of Thrones, I'm telling you. He sets this elaborate trap and like he marries David off to his daughter and then sends people to assassinate him. It's a weird story in 19 there. You can read for yourself. 
If not for Jonathan, David doesn't become king, and there's no, sto- no telling where the story of God's people goes. If not for the friend that David finds in Jonathan. And here's the thing. The story of the Bible, the story uh, that our story as God's people is this. If we are going to make it, <laughs> we're not going to do it alone. We're not. That's, that's the story of God's people from beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament. And the thing about not going it alone is that we were never, ever intended to go it alone. Because we can't. You actually, you go back to the beginning of the Bible, the story of creation. We see God creating this wonderful tapestry we call creation and that we get to enjoy and live in. And we see God making things and declaring after everything he makes, he declares it all good. But then you get in Genesis 2 and there's something that God looks at and all of a sudden God says, it's not good. You remember what it was? It is not good that man is alone. This whole teeming creation, man set uh, at, the, at the pinnacle of it. And God looks at all of it and says, it's not good that man's alone. And so we must find a helper suitable for him. Okay? You and I, I, I say all this just to say, get this across. You and I were made for relationships. In other words, you and I are made for each other. And this is a huge point, and the reason I want to stress this is this. This is why loneliness is a universally common human trait. Okay? I don't know how many of y'all get lonely, or feel ashamed of your loneliness, or can't deal with your loneliness. But this is what I want you to understand. When loneliness sweeps over you, it's not that something's wrong with you. It's that there's something that you were made for that's missing. That is why we all experience loneliness. It's, some, it's signaling something that we're made for, and we were not made to be alone. I don't know how many of y'all saw the movie uh, Into the Wild uh, or read the book. But uh, in 1991, a guy, recent high school graduate named Christopher McCandless, uh, he sold, his, he didn't tell, he's from like an upper class uh, life. He sold, he sold off his, uh, his savings, he sold his car, and he burned the cash in his wallet. And he just took off out into the wild of Alaska. And he was just going to live this new life. He thought like the key to life was to go out into nature and just live it up. Um, and his life, four months later, they found his body uh, as he did not make it in the Alaskan wild by himself. But one of the most touching parts of the book and the movie is that um, they found a book that he had been reading and some lines that he had underlined. And from the conclusion that he got from the book, he, re- he ended up etching this uh, in, in a wooden piece of furniture. Happiness only real when shared. He had to go all the way out into the wilds of Alaska to figure that out, that he was not ever going to be happy alone by himself. If we're going to learn what real friendship is, which I want to take a look at in this passage, uh, what being a real friend is about, the first place we have to start is that we were made for each other. That we need each other. We absolutely do. It's where God works in our lives. The need for a friend. David needed a friend. We need friends. We need them. We need them. 
The second one is this, the love of a friend. And when we look at this, I just want to look at Jonathan. And I, what we see in Jonathan and Jonathan and David's relationship here is what real friendship is all about. Um, what is real friendship all about? Four things here that I think we can just see real quickly. And the first one is this, real connection. Real connection, okay? Again, you have to love the art of the story. If you remember the last two weeks, the first two episodes that we've looked at in this story is about the danger and the consequences of only dealing with externals, right? Only dealing with things on the surface level. And then lo and behold, as the story really gets going, we're immediately told about Jonathan and David and how their souls were knit together. The implications of this is what kind of is, is the whole point of chapters 18 through 20. Uh, over a year ago, there was an article in the Huffington Post called Why Social Media Isn't Social. Have y'all seen these articles about how detrimental social media has been on our social lives? Which makes no sense, right? Um, because for, basically the author explores kind of the proliferation of social media. That in 2008, I find this astonishing. 2008, only 32% of America was on social media. A year later, or no, sorry, today, not a year later, today, over 70% of America is on social media, right? We're very connected as far as social media is concerned. But this is some of the things the author has to say. He says, you know, but the detriment of it is focusing on cultivating our online persona is a crutch. And the expense is our real life persona, And he goes on to say that we soon may live in a world with completely unreal expectations about ourselves and about each other. We all know this is real, right? Nobody, everybody puts just like the best parts of themselves on social media. We just do that. We're trying to share like happy things with each other. Or maybe you're the person that everybody unfollows because you're negative all the time. I don't know. Um, But in some, what, what I love about the article is what he says is that in our socializing, basically... Via the internet. What we're actually doing is making each other unattainable and unrelatable. We're more connected than anyone in the world has ever been. Yet in that connection, we have made, we're making each other unattainable and unrelatable. So, I mean, the question is, is the answer that we go out and like knit our souls together. Well, I don't exactly know how, what that looks like. So, I'm not offering that to you necessarily. No, but at the very least, I'm asking, are you aware that real relationships, real friendships require real connection? Real connection. Where does that come from? Well, I think the rest of these kind of bring that to light. The next one that we see in them is real commitment. Real commitment. You look at verse 3 of chapter 18. So we're told that that he loved him as his own soul. And then we're told in verse 3 that because he loves him as his own soul, he makes a covenant with David. Um, Jonathan bound himself to David. Bound himself with a promise. And in return, David is now bound to Jonathan in this friendship. It is a secure, bound relationship. And you see that the commitment, if you read through 18 through 20, the commitment, this covenant that they make with each other is at the forefront of this first friendship. It is what defines the friendship. Okay? Meaning it sets the tone. It defines relationship. Meaning circumstances are not going to define it. If you look at the story, it is really not a good time for Jonathan and David to be friends. But the circumstances don't dictate the relationship. The covenant does because they've bound themselves to one another. Another thing that tells us is that feelings are not going to define their relationship. 
David's scared. Jonathan's confused. But feelings are not going to define the relationship. They're saying to each other, I'm not going to back out of this if you hurt me, if you disappoint me, if you go back on it. We're bound to each other. The thing about commitment is it's a hard thing to come by in any realm, right? Um, especially though with friends, especially in trying to be a friend. And one thing I just want to suggest to you is how you practice commitment in every other realm of your life is directly going to influence how you practice commitment in your relationships. It necessarily will. Think about this. When is the last time that you did something for the sole reason that you said that just because you said you were going to do it? Think about that. Or think about it another way. How hard is it for you to say yes without weighing all the other options first? In anything. I mean, this is going to be anything, right? Commitment involves necessarily a letting go. Commitment, real commitment, real binding. It's a dying to self, especially in relationships. It's commitment for the sake of it, the relationship itself. And we see kind of the fruit of that in verse 4 of chapter 20 when, when David's saying, Jonathan, your father wants to kill me and Jonathan's trying to process it. But finally, Jonathan just looks at David and says, David, whatever you say, I'll do it. Commitment. Jonathan's commitment gives David the security and the friendship that he needs in this time of his life. Real connection, real commitment. The next one's real fellowship. And what makes this a great buddy story is that Jonathan and David are working together toward a common goal, right? They're, they're kind of coming together. Corporations will spend thousands upon thousands of dollars bringing in uh, team building gurus, right? To come in and take their personnel and do two team building exercises. And the reason they spend the thousand money on it is because people who feel like they're part of a team tend to work better, right? Um, and what, I mean, what are team building exercises? If you've worked at a camp, you could be a corporation guru on team building, right? Um, it's giving people common tasks. That's team building, right? And Jonathan and David have this. They have it because they're committed and they're bound to one another. But because they're bound for one another, now everything they have is they share in common, because they've bound each other, bound themselves to each other in their love and their friendship together, they share everything in common. In other words, David's needs now become Jonathan's needs. David's goals now become Jonathan's goals. And because they're bound to one another, David's story now becomes Jonathan's story. And the beauty of Jonathan is that we see him actively entering into that to prosper it. And to make sure that it continues. The book of Acts, if you read through that, the early church um, in the days of the apostles, we see the same thing happen in the early church. In Acts 2, verse 44, we, we read about how the early church, the early believers are gathering to them, uh, gathering to each other and kind of huddling up, not necessarily, but people are believing and kind of becoming a part of this new community. And we read in Acts 2, 44 this, all who believed uh, were together. And they had all things in common. All things in common. That word there uh, is where we get the New Testament word. Perhaps you've heard it uh, before. Koinonia uh, trans can be translated fellowship a lot in the New Testament. Uh, used to describe the relationship of believers throughout the New Testament. One of the marks of the early church is that they were together and held all things in common. And one of the external signs of that is that they sold all their stuff. And to distributed it as needed. 
They held all things in common. And we see the early church holding all things in common externally because what they're doing is displaying, representing a spiritual reality of being, rep- of being united in Christ. This is kind of what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3 verse 28 when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Real fellowship. I was talking to someone earlier in the week about their time at Passion. uh, And we're talking about just recognizing the high that you get when you go to something like that and then kind of coming back into the real world. And I, I forget how I asked it, but I basically said something, you know, you know what's the high? What, what's the root of that? And the response was golden. It's like, I don't know, it's just you have 20,000 people headed in the same direction. I thought it was a beautiful way of thinking that. If you're not familiar with Passion Conference, it's around 20,000 people um, all headed in the same direction, <laughs> spiritually, uh, at least for a couple of days. This is a, a side note on this. This is why true friendship, true relationship, the ones that we were made for, they cannot be found outside of Christ. They can't be. Um, If you don't have Jesus in common, you don't have a common horizon. Not only do you not have a common horizon, you don't have a common eternal horizon. uh, You're not journeying uh, to a common goal. This explains Paul's exhortation not to be unequally yoked Uh, to unbelievers. Now, this does not mean that Christians are not to be friends with non-Christians. Obviously not. Um, But what it, nor that we shouldn't strive for it. But what it means is that true friendship is a fully entering in with. And we can have all sorts of common horizons that create friendship, right? But if it is not ultimately Christ, it cannot be true friendship. It cannot be true relationship that we're made for. The last one of this, of, of what real friendship is about, is um, real vulnerability. Real vulnerability. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 20. David, David looks at Jonathan and says, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father? He'll go on to say in verse 8, it's not in your handout, but he'll go on to say in verse 8 to Jonathan, If there is a guilt in me, kill me yourself. You're kind of like, woo, (laughs) right? Uh, I was getting a little heated. But you notice what David doesn't say is there's no, he doesn't say there's no way I haven't done anything wrong. He doesn't say that. Um, He doesn't think he's done anything, but this is what he's willing to tell his friend Jonathan. Because of the connection, because of the commitment, because of the fellowship, he's willing to look at Jonathan and say, whatever I am, whatever I've done, I'm okay with it being in your hands. I'm okay with it being in your hands. The depth and security of their relationship allowed them to be real to the utmost. It allowed them to be open. It allowed them to say, you can search me and know me and I'm okay with that. Find what you find and deal with it however you will deal with it. That was the depth of the security of the relationship. David is willing to let Jonathan in. (laughs) Whatever he may find. So his life is kind of quite literally in Jonathan's hands there. You know, for some of you, whether you've recognized it or not, this is the greatest barrier for you to real friendship and real relationships. Though you know you need it, though you know you need to go there, you're not willing to let anyone in. And there are so many different ways you can do this, right? You can do it with the boisterous personality. You can do it with the closed-off, shy personality. You can do it 
by putting on the mask uh, and letting people think you are something that you're not. Whether it's an issue of you just being in control or whether it's you being burned in the past, you're just not willing to let people in. Right? And that's going to harden you. <laughs> it's going to harden you to other people and you're going to have a hard time finding true friendship, true relationships. You're going to have a hard time when you get married truly relating to your spouse because you've practiced your whole life not letting people in. And you're the one person that you've now bound yourself to in real covenant, you think your marriage is going to go anywhere if you're not letting them in. Right? Others of you, though, are a little too open, maybe. Uh, perhaps you're a walking open wound, as wound as uh, Dashboard Confessional used to put it. I don't know if anybody's heard of them. That was a long time ago. Um, the original hipster, Chris Caraba. Anyway, nobody knows who I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, the thing is, David, David isn't using Jonathan to vent. David isn't using Jonathan to dump on. It's a genuine vulnerability of search me and know me. I'm willing to let you do that. Uh, I was at, there was a marriage conference this past weekend at First Pres um, that I attended because I'm married. Um, I don't have the I don't have the whole marriage thing figured out yet. Um, I'm trying, but one thing that the the guy said it was it was all great. If you're interested, I mean, it's, you don't have to be married to get stuff out of that. And the MP3s are online, and I would love to get them to you. But at one point, this is what the guy said. I thought this was beautiful. He said, "You know, the point of getting older is growing up." Right? Um, growing up stinks, by the way. Um, stay where you are. No, I'm getting way off track. So the point of getting older is growing up. The point is maturity, right? And spiritually so as well. Paul is always talking about growing up into Christ. In spiritual maturity. And one thing that he says is that when you get older, you, as you get older, as you continue to get older, you really only have two choices. Vulnerability... Or cynicism. Vulnerability or cynicism. And he said a sign of maturity is saying, you know what, I can be close to someone and not lose myself in the middle of it. I can be vulnerable. I don't have to be hard, but I also don't have to lose myself. And he says, because I have the security of saying that my emotions are not your responsibility, but I'm willing to let you in. You know, you think about it, he also said this, and I thought this was amazing. The gospel is a vulnerable story, is it not? You think about it, you know, that God comes down, he's a baby, he's in a manger. The whole thing, it's vulnerable. God didn't have to make himself vulnerable, but he did. He led the way for us on this. It's a story that he gives us. The love of a friend. What does real friendship look like? I'm just offering kind of fly over here that it involves real, real connection, real commitment, real fellowship, and real vulnerability. The last one's this. The costliness of being a friend. Because it, the more you explore those, and we, didn't, we can't do them all justice, but the more you explore those, the more you realize real friendship costs. Real friendship costs. How does, I mean, think about this. Think about Jonathan. How does this relationship benefit Jonathan in any way? You'll have a hard time finding it. 
All we find out is that he loved David. And so he bound himself to him. And he does whatever he can in his power to prosper him. What is in it for Jonathan? In real world terms, absolutely nothing. Jonathan's entering into relationship with David actually does nothing but make his life harder. You see that, right? Um, he ends up even having a spear thrown at him at the end of the day. When Saul wants to kill David, Jonathan is the one that stands in the middle and almost takes a spear for it. The thing about Jonathan is that he defers. He defers away from himself at, grace, at great cost to himself. What does he defer to? He defers to God's kingdom. He defers to God's word. And therefore, he defers to God's servant, David. You could say, along the lines of Philippians 2 and 3, that Jonathan emptied himself. And that he was willing to suffer the loss of all things for his friend David. Verse 4, look at verse, this is kind of the most, we could have just done a whole sermon on 18 verse 4. Where we read that Jonathan, because he wanted to be David's friend, stripped himself. He strips himself of his robe, he strips himself of his armor, he strips himself of his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is what Jonathan does. Jonathan gives to David everything that made Jonathan Jonathan. Jonathan gives to David at great cost to himself everything that made Jonathan Jonathan. There's something that really stuck out from my wedding. We didn't record our wedding. Great regret there. Um, but I do remember uh, the minister who had been my campus minister saying this. Um, he said, he looked at both of us and he said, it doesn't get easier <laughs> from here. He said, no, 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 the easy part's over. And I knew exactly what he meant. I, I, I kind of wondered when he said it what people in the crowd were thinking. And he wasn't trying to rain on our parade, right? Uh, what he was saying was real relationship, which we were then entering. We were entering the ultimate rela- human relationship that God has ordained for us, marriage. He was saying real relationship costs. And I remember he goes. He went on to say, because where there was not, where there was one sinner, now in the same house there's going to be two. Double the fun, right? Double the selfishness, double the self-centeredness, all those things. There's nothing easy about entering relationships. One of my favorite titles of any relationship book that I've ever seen uh, is "Relationships: A Mess Worth Making." I think that just encapsulates the whole thing. Relationships are messy. If you're going to enter a relationship with someone, even if you're doing it superficially, at some point it's going to get sticky. At one point it's going to be messy. Because we disappoint each other. We do things to each other. We focus on ourselves instead of the other. We're, we're about this. So what I want to cl- this concluding thought is look at the end of chapter 20. After all said and done, Jonathan realizes David can no longer stay or his father will kill him. And they meet up at the end of the chapter, verse 42, the last time that they see each other. And Jonathan looks at David in verse 42 and he says, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord. Now, Jonathan is not claiming that all is now peaceful. Because as we read on the story, we know that's not the case. But what Jonathan says is that there is peace between us. In other words, in our relationship, there is safety. 
David, between me and you, there is an anchor here. There is a firm foundation for you to stand on. Go in that. David can go in peace because he has something to stand on. And you see, this, the beautiful part of re- this is why I love the Old Testament. The beautiful part of reading stories like this in light of the gospel is that we know that the point of the story cannot be, okay, now go and be better friends. All of us do need to hear that. We're terrible friends and we need to be better friends. But the point of the story cannot be go out and be a better friend because we're hopeless if that's where the story leaves us. Now, in light of the gospel, we get to remember this. Jesus, in John 15, to his disciples on the night uh, before he's crucified, saying this. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you know what he said in the next next breath? You are my friends. That's the gospel. (laughs) Paul reflects on this in Romans 5. As he says that we, because of Jesus now, have peace with God while also enduring affliction. That we do endure affliction, but we have peace with God. And what Paul goes on to say is it's because we have a God that takes enemies and makes them friends. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? We don't have peace. We don't find peace because things are peaceful. But because one greater than David, one even greater than Jonathan, has pledged his friendship with us. And he sealed it with his own blood. And the thing about that story, as we'll continue to unfold here, is that if that is true, what it means is that you and I really can be friends. We really can connect. We really can commit. We really can have fellowship. And we really can be vulnerable with one another because who did that more or close to Jesus? And he did it all for us. What if it's true? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the friend that we have in Jesus. Father, we thank you that though we were enemies, you set your love on us. You committed yourself to us. You bound yourself to us at the cost of your own son. Father, we pray that this would be our strength and our song as we attempt to be friendly with each other as you've made us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.